Lawyers make huge changes in this country, whether it's the environment, whether it's a fair criminal trial, uh, whether it's making automobiles safe. They do a lot that people don't know about. The fact that the Clarence Darrow's or the Earl Rogers aided labor movements in this country where people could make a, an honest wage and they could have vacation time. So now when a student is graduating from Temple University and he wants to understand what it is he should do to improve the world of lawyering, he has a place to go. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also another blog called Media Law. And this is Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. We have an extended special edition of our show today, but before we get to it, I'd like to just take one moment to thank our sponsor, Clio, the online practice management software for lawyers, which you can find at www.goclio.com. Well, welcome to a special edition of Lawyer to Lawyer. Today, we are talking about the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame, which opened its doors at Temple University's Beasley School of Law in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania on September the 10th. Originally founded by the Trial Lawyer magazine and funded exclusively by donation, this institute recognizes and honors individuals, past and present, who have fought on behalf of citizens in the name of justice. To quote from the site, the men and women have left an indelible mark on the American legal tradition through a lifetime of service to the American public, the Constitution, and the American trial bar. Later in the show, we're going to have a second segment in which we're going to be talking to uh, another very prominent trial lawyer about a new book just out about his colorful career. But for this first part of the show, we have three leading uh, trial lawyers with us to talk about the new uh, Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame and to talk about their own careers. Uh, Let's uh, introduce them and bring them onto the show. First of all, I would like to welcome Mike Papantonio, Mike uh, uh, partner in Levin, Papantonio, Thomas Mitchell, Rafferty, and Proctor. He was instrumental in putting together this Hall of Fame. Uh, he, uh, besides being a well-known uh, trial lawyer, he also co-hosts the nationally syndicated talk show, Ring of Fire, with his co-hosts, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, and Sam Cedar, a comedian, writer, and actor who starred in various TV shows. Mr. Papantonio is nationally known for his success in mass tort litigation. He's a recipient of multiple prestigious awards and accomplished author of several motivational books for lawyers. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mr. Papantonio. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, in addition, we've got joining us from his studio in Texas, Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame inductee Howard Nations. Howard's national practice is currently working on Litigation for Actos Bladder Cancer, Defective Hip Implants, Transvaginal Mesh, Praxida, and the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill. As a pioneer in courtroom technology, Howard was the first attorney to have computer-generated liability and medical animations admitted into evidence at trial. Among his many awards, he is the recipient of the W. McKinley Smiley Jr. Lighthouse Award, the Belli Society's Mel Award, and the MTMP's Clarence Darrow Award. Welcome, Mr. Nations. Well, good afternoon. Thanks. Uh, Glad to join you. And last but not least, we would like to welcome back to our show uh, Mr. Thomas Girardi. Tom Girardi is another Hall of Fame inductee who is uh, well-known for his work in uh, the case Anderson versus Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, a case uh, well-known to many because it was uh, the source for the film Aaron Brockovich. Among uh, Mr. Girardi's numerous headlines, uh, he has secured a $4.85 billion settlement from Merck for Vioxx, a $785 million verdict from Lockheed for personal injuries, and a $1.7 billion settlement from the state of California for manipulating natural gas prices. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Tom Girardi. Hey, thanks very much. Very nice to be here and to be here with my two pals, uh, in the trial practice is really nice for me. 
Well, celebrated trial attorney and once leading member of the ACLU, Clarence Darrow, once said, the only real lawyers are trial lawyers, and trial lawyers try cases to juries. In the spirit of that remark, this is the first question for all of you. Besides yourselves, and not including the other people that are on the show, Mike, who do you think is the best trial attorney you've ever known? The best trial attorney I've, I've, I've known personally, uh, well, I mean, I have, to, I have to come down on the side of it being a, uh, a defense lawyer. I mean, all round. If I'm if I'm going to rule out the people we're talking about here right now, but uh, his name was Eric Kennedy, and I think the thing that made him effective was his ability to be able to communicate in the same way that a good claimant's plaintiff's lawyer communicates. Most of the time, you don't see that with with defense lawyers. But it kind of took me by surprise, and I remember walking away saying, "This is had this guy spent most of his career." Doing what we do, he would have been just so so effective. As a matter of fact, he did move that way. I urged him to move into doing mass torts, and now he's 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 an exceptional mass tort uh, trial lawyer. Howard, how about you? Same question. Well, that's a very easy question for me because the answer is Percy Foreman. When I was a law student at Vanderbilt, uh, Percy came up and did a demonstration. Uh, and he gave a speech for one hour, and I'll tell you, that was the most important single hour of my legal education. Uh, when I came to Houston, uh, Percy actually became my mentor. I watched him in court. Uh, he he showed the power of nonverbal communication, and he taught me the importance of, of the law, knowing the law, the importance of hands-on preparation by the attorney doing the work, and the uh, very big importance of attention to detail. Percy said, when I walk into a courtroom, I know more about the law of that case than anybody on the planet. And when I walk into a courtroom, I know more about the facts of my case than anybody on the planet. Tremendous, tremendous trial lawyer. And Tom Girardi? Well, this is uh, also easy for me, but it's going to be a defense lawyer, just like like my pal uh, just talked about. John Costanzo was the lead lawyer for General Motors and all of the massive cases out here in California. And I don't think there's anybody that had a better way to relate to a jury than John Costanzo. And I think trying cases against him indeed taught me so much about when you try these cases, you're trying them to this, these people sitting there. You're not trying them to the witness. You're not trying them to the judge. Matter of fact, it was said not too long ago that the only victory I've ever had that counts is that I beat Costanzo once. Uh, he was a spectacular lawyer with, and had the ability to smile uh, just uh, at the right time and absolutely get everything his way. What is it that makes a good trial lawyer? I mean, you know, I, I try cases myself. But uh, and I've seen some good ones and I've seen some bad ones. But Mike, in your estimation, what is it that is the, at the root of a good trial lawyer? I met uh, a man by the name of Perry Nichols one time right before his death. He was uh, sitting. He was sitting in his library at his home. He was on a dialysis machine, and I had not started practicing law. Matter of fact, I was even considering becoming a journalist rather than uh, an attorney. And I asked him, uh, what is it that made you, in your mind, such an extraordinary trial lawyer? And he said, son, you see these books behind me? I've read every one of them. And there was Hemingway and Steinbeck and Joseph Conrad, and all of the great minds were right there. And he said, what I do is I take all of these great ideas, and I try to visit them on every jury that I ever speak to. And that's what makes a great trial lawyer, to be able to think in bigger ideas and bigger, different cultures, different languages, different concepts that people don't run into every day, the concepts that raise their thought about where they are in the world and what they, what they should be doing in the world. And I think that's what made Perry Nichols such an extraordinary trial lawyer. Is he, he could look at a jury and really raise their consciousness about what they should be thinking about in that trial. Having heard both of you, or two of you rather, uh, cite defense lawyers as your as as the greatest trial lawyer you knew, it makes me wonder whether, from where you sit, there is a difference between a plaintiff's trial lawyer and a defense trial lawyer, or a civil trial lawyer and a criminal trial lawyer. Uh, Howard, what do you say about that? 
Well, there's some fundamentally basic skills that every type of trial lawyer has to possess and has to be able to express in front of a jury. The ability to communicate effectively with the jury, uh, the ability to uh, actually the ability to read people, the ability to pick a jury, the ability to know as you're going through a trial. Uh, how your re- how your story is resonating with the jury? How are you being received? Uh, there's also commonality in whether you're doing civil cases or criminal cases. You have to know the law. The law is a starting point, and you have to have to really do what we do. You actually have to love the law, and regardless of which side of the docket you're on, uh, there should be. A, a very strong interest in doing justice in a case. If we go in attempting to do justice in a case and knowing what justice is and thinking in terms of a just result for our client, if you've got clients on both sides trying to reach a just result, then you get an honest trial to a jury. And I, uh, very, I'm a strong, strong, strong believer in the jury system and in the integrity of juries. And, and they do find a way uh, they do find a way. Every time I've ever lost a case, you think, boy, the jury just completely missed that. But then when I go back and reflect on it or when we go back and talk to jurors late, later, uh, you find out, no, you know what? They're right. I'm the one that missed that. I did something wrong. I, I failed or I just didn't have the facts on my side. But the jury system works. So as a great trial lawyer, you have to be able to communicate with them. You have to be able to read them and you have to be able to deliver a message to them that, that carries the uh, theme of justice for your client. Tom, if I had you in my uh, trial advocacy class that I teach at uh, University of Iowa in the, in the wintertime, what would you say to the young students there about becoming a trial lawyer? Well, there's nothing like it, man. That's all there is to it. You know, when you talk about being a lawyer, um, how about this family law? By the time the case is over, the lady hates you, the guy hates you, the judge doesn't like you too much. Um, this is mergers and acquisitions as you go through page 89 to see if the... Oh, no, it's, it's really bad. The thing about the being a lawyer is... The only thing to be is a trial lawyer. And you get your you get your report card, man. That's all there is to it. When you go back to the office after the jury comes back, you say, I won the case. Or you come back, you say, I lost the case. And you're telling the truth because the better lawyer wins or loses the case. Because the cases that go to trial are those cases that are very close. When the drunk truck driver runs over the little kid on the sidewalk, that case doesn't go to trial. The cases that go to trial are those cases that can go either way. And when you talk about cases that can go either way, the better lawyer is going to win it. That's all there is to it. And that's why when that jury rings and they have a verdict, and I don't care if it's over 25000 or $25 trillion, your heart beats. And they come in, and you're about to get your report card. There's nothing like it. Mike Papantonio, uh, a few weeks ago, the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame opened in its uh, new permanent home at Temple Law School in Philadelphia. I know you were instrumental uh, in in bringing the uh, Hall of Fame about uh, and, and in helping to find this home. What is the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame and, and why do we need something like that? Well, during the mid-'80s, we all watched Karl Rove launch his uh, Southern strategy in America's solid South. We saw a major part of the Southern strategy was to wage war against trial lawyers. The reason for that was because he understood that a lot of the money that came for the Democratic Party came from trial lawyers. Rove helped organize attack dog organizations, the Americans Against Lawsuit Abuse, the Justice Reform Project. Twenty years of that, 20 years of, of, of arguing to the American public that lawyers were interfering with medical research and development, bankrupting entire cities, destroying the possibilities that children might play sports in school. So, you know, he created this villain, this image to the point that one of America's most prestigious lawyer organizations actually changed their name. I mean, the American Trial Lawyers Association, uh, they changed it to the AAJ. It was as if they were running away from the story. And, and we have great stories to tell. Uh, the, the message is when we tell our stories, people understand how important what we do really is. 
So why not tell our stories? Tell stories about lawyers who faced uh, the impossible odds of challenging 1965, uh, 1960 civil rights wars. Uh, it was a time, if you think about it, when lawyers weren't just battling people in the courtroom. Hell, they were going uh, arm in arm walking in the streets with protesters. They had dogs sicked on them. They had rocks and bottles thrown at them. They had police batons smashed against their head. So why in the world would we not have a place where people can go and they can remember these stories. They can remember the fact that the Clarence Darrows or the Earl Rogers aided labor movements in this country where people could make an honest wage and they could have vacation time and they could work without the threat of, uh, of injury and death. Lawyers make huge changes in this country, whether it's the environment, whether it's criminal, a fair criminal trial, or whether it's making automobiles safe. They do a lot that people don't know about because Carl Rove's strategy was successful. So now when a student is graduating from Temple University and he wants to understand what it is he should do to improve the world of lawyering, he has a place to go. He pushes a button. He hears Tom Girardi, Howard Nations, Fred Levin tell the story about the sacrifices they made and the good for the public that came out of those sacrifices. I was going to say that you both have, uh, several of you have mentioned that uh, defense lawyers are are your best-known trial lawyer. Are defense lawyers included in the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame? Yeah, they will be at some point. Um, you know, the... The point is, if they want a Hall of Fame, they, they're welcome to start one at any time. I mean, this is the, the thing is, if you look at what a defense lawyer does for the most part, what do they do? They're on the other side of a plaintiff's lawyer like Howard Nations or Tom Girardi or Fred Levin or myself when we're trying to make a pharmaceutical company take a product off the market that's killing thousands of people or that we're trying to make a product safe. Who chooses to say, yeah, I'm comfortable with that? I'm good with that. I know this company's done something awful, but I'm getting paid to defend them, and, and I'm good with that. So I've never felt a kinship with all of that. And I've always said, well, someday, you know, defense lawyers may want to start their own Hall of Fame, or at some point, this may morph into actually including exceptional trial lawyers that are on the defense side. But uh, right now, I don't think they have anything to complain about. They've got plenty of money and plenty of access to start a Hall of Fame wherever they want. So should we call it the plaintiff's lawyer's trial? No, not at all, because we have criminal defense lawyers in there. We have civil defense lawyers in there. We've got uh, civil rights lawyers in there. We have environmental lawyers in there. And at some point, I think we will have, we will have defense lawyers that, that say, let me stand outside of this mold that I've put myself in. Let me stand outside that mold and let me do great things uh, outside of that mold. And they do it. There, there are defense lawyers out there that when they walk out of their office, you know, they step into the street, they are different people in many ways. They do take up causes that are very significant. You know, I think the greatest thing you said, Mike, was the good the plaintiff's lawyers do beyond the individual that they represent. You, when you look at the, the ads for drugs now and they start listing all of the potential side effects, just to give the person a little bit of a warning, stadium safety, because of the Dodger case and other cases, has totally changed. The manner in which all of these chemicals are used in plants, all of a sudden there are all sorts of protections that are given, and that's all because of the plaintiff's bar. Believe me, the FCC didn't change things around. The FDA doesn't change things around. The plaintiff's lawyers are the people that have changed more to make this a better place than anybody. One of the uh, areas where, where plaintiff's lawyers do get criticized or, or one of the criticisms you hear about plaintiff's lawyers relates to the whole contingency fee structure. And uh, I, I, there are some uh, who will say that, that uh, contingency fees are sometimes uh, windfalls for lawyers, you know, especially in big dollar cases or in class actions where – Members of a class might might get a relatively small recovery individually. Howard Nations, I'm wondering about your thoughts on that. What what's what's the reason for the contingency fee? How do you defend the contingency fee? Well, it's very simple to defend. The contingency fee is the key to the courthouse for people who cannot afford to hire a lawyer, uh, who don't have the money of the corporations, who don't have the money of the insurance companies, who can't afford to go into court and pay a lawyer on an hourly basis. Uh, The people who are the uh, injured 
they're uh, often severely crippled. Uh, their family life is destroyed. Their financial life is destroyed by by the actions of defendants, and they're they're quite often can't pay their medical bills. They have no income for supporting families. Uh, how are those people supposed to? Uh, find a way into the courthouse if if they also had to pay a lawyer by the hour to represent them? The answer is they wouldn't. And that's the reason for the attack on the contingent fee. The attack on the contingent fee is made by uh, the tortfeasors of America, who are the ones who don't want the injured parties to have a fair shake, to have their day in court. Uh, I went into a case in which a three-year-old child uh, was was brain damaged. Uh, his parents were both injured in the case. They had no money. They uh, the father lost his his source of income. Everybody lost their source of income. Uh, the child was uh, severely brain injured, and it was all because of a, an event that happened up in uh, on a highway in West Virginia uh, with a truck driver. Uh, but then we had to, in addition to him. We had to take on the manufacturer of the product. The child was brain injured uh, by virtue of a child safety seat, allegedly, supposedly called a child safety seat. We took on that manufacturer. We took on that 18-wheeler driver. And uh, I spent, uh, I don't usually talk about what I spent, but this is what this, is what this question's about. I spent well over $400,000 in that case, risking out of my own pocket. I expended uh, untold amounts of time, the people I had to pay to handle that case, all the people who you know, on my staff, all the money, time, effort, and energy we put into that. They did not pay us one penny in that case. We were, we were able to handle that case for them. We took all the risk of being able to win. We took all the risk of being able to prove to a jury that that car seat was defectively designed, a car seat that was being used all over the country, uh, that it was defectively designed and that, that was a cause of this uh, brain injury to the child. And we were successful in doing so. And as a result of that, the child is receiving lifetime care. Uh, the parents receive the money they need to put their life back together. And so when the child reaches age 18, he'll, be, he'll start getting his additional funds in trust for the rest of his life. So it's a huge change uh, in the life of that family. And most importantly, that car seat, as part of the ultimate settlement of the case, the car seat was taken off of the market by agreement with the manufacturer because that was a term of the settlement post-trial. So we do that. We did it on a contingent fee basis. If I had lost that case, I would have lost $400,000. But more importantly, if I had lost that case, uh, that three-year-old child would never have gotten the medical care he needed, and those parents would have been absolutely broke and, and their, their family destroyed forever. How do you guys re respond to the judicial hellhole report that comes out every year about just ungodly uh, awards that the, the defense bar claims are made? It's fantasy. It's fantasy. Look, look let, me, let me put this in perspective. When I finish a mass tort case, uh, for example, a case in West Virginia destroyed an entire community. DuPont came in and obliterated, decimated a community. And I say to the judge, the judge is just judges at the end of the uh, at the end of the case. There's something called a, a common benefit in a mass tort case. And every time I've ever gone to a judge and I've said, Judge, why don't you just pay us the same thing that these silk stocking lawyers got paid by uh, by whatever the firm is of the day? Why don't you just pay us that amount? Every time we've done that, not only can we not find out how much these corporations have paid these silk stocking law firms, they object to it strenuously. They say, hell no, we don't want you to be paid the same thing we're paid. Why don't we limit the amount of money that defense lawyers are paid? Why are, why are you even asking the question about a contingency fee until you factor in there that if we want to limit fees, you really want to bring down the cost of litigation, tell these six, these silk stocking defense lawyers that they're going to be limited not to $2,000 an hour, limitless billing, but to maybe $200 an hour. Why don't we run that by them? Well, that might solve this judicial hellhole issue. 
How does the uh, the hourly rates shake out after a contingency? What are you finding that you hit? Are you at the $200 an hour range like the defense lawyers or are you much higher? It depends. Sometimes I'm zero. Sometimes I spend $4 million working up a project and come back with zero. So there's no way to, there's no way to factor it in. You know, if you if you really want to focus this discussion on contingency fee, why don't you get a defense lawyer on the phone and say, gee whiz, will you limit your fee? You're asking the plaintiffs, you're asking the injured victim, the person who's blinded or crippled or killed by somebody's defective product, by a drug that a drug company knows has the propensity to kill them. Would you limit your fee the same way that you'll limit access for that person to go to court? That's what the analysis is here. And it's, a, it's an absurd analysis, and unfortunately, most people who, who don't know the facts get drawn into it. That's what Carl Rove tried to accomplish when he came up with this strategy of, of how do we discredit trial lawyers. That was part of it. The very fact that you're asking this question tells me it was a huge success. Well, we ask it because there's a lot of people who ask it, I think. I mean, I think the other thing, you know, the, the whole tort reform, tort deform, whatever you want to call it, movement uh, focused on where it was the question of punitive damages. Uh, and, you know, I think their position, the, the tort, the, the, the Karl Roves of the world would focus on the issue of uh, are punitives out of line with the injury in a case. Uh, I'd rather they be thrown in jail. I'd rather they be thrown in jail than pay punitive damages. If we can agree to throw them in jail when they kill people, hell with punitive damages. That's my, I don't know, Tom, what do you think? No, you're, you're for sure. And you only, first of all, you only get punitive damages not for somebody being negligent. You get punitive damages because somebody absolutely, positively, without a doubt, wants to hurt other people to his own gain. That's when you get punitive damages. And indeed, this is the vehicle in which I think is the best vehicle to make corporations out there say, listen, we better throttle back. We better do the right thing here for people. And then, furthermore, you should also know this, that the court has the final say on punitive damages. Let's suppose the punitive damage award is out of line. Then, indeed, the court has the ability to say, no, I'm reducing the punitives to this particular number because I think this is too much of a punishment. So there are safeguards built into the system that every once in a while the the jury is so upset with the conduct, maybe they get a little too enthusiastic. But indeed, in those cases, the court limits it immediately and fairness takes place. Yeah, the fairness really would be, why do we throw a kid that sells marijuana on the street corner in jail for three, selling three ounces of marijuana and we let Wall Street still steal $8 trillion from the American public and nobody goes to jail? I would gladly, Howard, I think you would too, do away with punitive damages and start putting white-collar criminals in prison when they steal from people, when they commit crimes. We won't do that in the United States. And the only thing a corporation, a sociopathic corporation understands, is taking their money away from them. Well, it looks like we're just about out of time for this segment. We want to thank our guests, Mr. Papantonio, Mr. Nations, and Mr. Girardi for joining us today. Before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. But stay tuned, because when we return, we'll be hearing from fellow Hall of Fame inductee, Mr. Fred Levin, the man who brought big tobacco to its knees, and a new biography about him and his very colorful career. Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And 
Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, uh, along with my co-host, Jay Craig Williams. And joining us for this segment of the show is Mr. Fred Levin. Fred is commonly referred to as the man who brought down big tobacco by helping to secure the largest settlement in U.S. history. To date, he has won over 100 jury verdicts and settlements worth at least a million dollars. During his very colorful career, he's represented heavyweight boxing champion Roy Jones Jr., helped start the national firm of Johnny Cochran, befriended multiple presidential candidates, and even been twice investigated for murder. (laughs) Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Fred Levin. Well, thank you for asking me to be here. Well, Fred, in addition to being inducted into the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame, and congratulations on that, there's a new biography about you and your career written by Josh Young titled, And Give Up Showbiz. Fred, in the prologue of this book, you're quoted as saying, Without wearing the uniform, being a trial lawyer is the most exciting damn thing in the world. It's showbiz. What did you exactly mean by that? Well, there are winners and losers in in, in the trial practice. Uh, it's interesting. I have a dear, dear friend, former head coach of the Buffalo Bills, and he was telling me that the nearest that he could come to the excitement of winning and losing was uh, going to a gambling casino. So I, my thought is this, that uh, the excitement, the competitiveness in a courtroom would be, I think, similar to uh, a football game or uh, a sporting event. So that's what I meant by it. Fred, when you were uh, younger, uh, this book relates, and even into your early legal career, you had a fear of public speaking. Uh, Tell us about that, and how did you get over it? Well, when I got out of law school, my uh, thought was to work for about a year, go to tax law school. Uh, I'd Really, the last thing in the world that I ever dreamed of was being a trial lawyer. And there there was a situation that arose with uh, a great defense lawyer named Burt Lane, and I had to file a lawsuit. I did not ask for, it was an insurance claim, and I didn't ask for a jury trial. And he called me and he said, uh, you either accept the settlement or I'm going to ask for a jury trial. Make a long story short, uh, we went to a jury trial, and I was scared to death, worked so hard uh, preparing, and I really ended up getting uh, about three times more than what I had offered to settle for. And so I began to realize that that hard work can make up for a lot of uh, uh, inability. And uh, so basically, and, and it, it, like I say, I ended up getting three times the amount that I had originally offered to settle for. And so I figured, heck, let's keep going with it. And to this day, I just, uh, I've told many people that, you know, if you were to judge me on IQ or something like that, I'd be really pushed to get to be average. But when it comes to preparation, I work day and night, even at this point. Uh, Last night, I got up three or four times and took notes for a case I'm getting ready to try in a week in uh, California. Fred, you've been friends with five very serious uh, presidential candidates, Reuben Askew, your partner, Jack Kemp, Bob Graham, John Edwards, and Gary Hart. Would you say it's a wise idea for a presidential candidate to try and seek your endorsement because none of those guys got elected? <laughs> well, I, I don't think uh, <laughs> any of them wanted endorsement. I think in each situation they were looking for funding. So, uh, no, it, it – my endorsement, I doubt, would mean anything. Fred, you're probably uh, best known uh, nationally for your role in uh, the massive uh, tobacco settlement in, in Florida and for tobacco litigation across the country. Part of what's so interesting about that story is that uh, you actually turned to the legislature to kind of set the stage for the legal proceedings that followed. Uh, can you kind of tell us how that came to be? Yes. um, It started back in, oh, I guess in British Columbia at Whistler. And a guy named Ron Motley came up to me and said, they're thinking about suing uh, tobacco for the state of Mississippi. 
would I be interested in doing it at Florida? And I told him, no, they've never paid a cent to anything. Anyhow, I returned to my hometown of Pensacola and was just going through the statute books one day and came across Florida's third-party Medicaid Recovery Act. And I realized that with just a change here and a change there, it actually would allow Florida to sue tobacco without all of the problems, such as assumption of risk and um, just different things that would have created problems. So I went to Governor Childs and explained it to him, and he loved it. And from that point, well, I said, let's go have a, a press conference. And he said, absolutely not. He said, if, they, if tobacco finds out anything about this, it'll never pass. So he told me, just stay out of it, and I did. And then a good friend of ours, W.D. Childers, who was president of the Florida Senate, passed those minor little changes in the last day of the session, and that allowed it to happen. And uh, there's a lot that went on after that, but it was found constitutional, and uh, it really set the stage for um, almost $300 billion uh, global settlement. Uh, it, the statute was called the most significant piece of health care legislation ever passed in this country, and today it is said that it's saving about 100,000 American lives each year that would otherwise have died from smoking. I think every young lawyer, perhaps every lawyer's fear uh, is uh, that they might uh, come up on charges from the bar. Uh, one of the perhaps odd things about your career, given uh, your many accomplishments, is you've, you've been prosecuted by the Florida Bar twice and investigated another two times. What, what, what does that leave you thinking about the, the uh, ethics enforcement mechanisms uh, in our profession? <laughs> All right, well, it, it started, as Mike uh, and Tom and told you and Howard told you, there's a lot of animosity toward trial lawyers, the people that do what we do, and especially back, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And uh, we were getting big verdicts, and it created some um, animosity and jealousy. And then all of a sudden, the tobacco thing came through, and I was going to give the money away anyhow and gave it to my university, the University of Florida, which is now known as the Frederick G. Levin College of Law. Well, this really upset those uh, the bar. And uh, they brought charges against me. Uh, I think the first one was for betting on football games. And uh, I opened my mouth, and I probably should have not and I made the statement, I said, instead of you worrying about me betting on a football game, you ought to be concerned about those four lawyers who are still practicing law in our town who've been uh, guilty of stealing from their clients. Well, that hit the press, and, and so uh, they gave me a public reprimand. <laughs> then the next one was um, I called in, in a closing argument, I called the defense lawyer that he was ridiculous, which, God, uh, I've done so much worse than that, it's unbelievable. Well, anyhow, the, uh, I, by that time, I had also upset the appellate courts, and so they, without any objection, they reversed the case that I was uh, on, sent it back for a new trial because of ethical violations. I had gone into my personal opinions or something. Anyhow, I was found innocent of that. And, of course, what happened was that um, the case went back for a new trial, and I got four times what the original verdict was. And uh, also, later, the Florida Supreme Court uh, said in another case that there was absolutely nothing wrong with that. And then the third time was uh, this judge. I had nothing to do with the case, but the judge had, in something called the Sunshine Law, had Anyhow, he had convicted the president of the Florida Senate, W.D. Childers, for having met with a fellow legislator in this particular situation, a fellow county commissioner, and uh, they found him guilty of one count. And the judge said that 
Um, he wasn't going to give him a bond. He wasn't going to let him appeal. He threw him right in jail. And then I had to open my mouth again, and I said it appeared that the inmates had taken over the asylum. And that <laughs> that really upset the bar, and they tried to bring charges, but uh, the committee that made the, the decision thought it wasn't that bad. So anyhow, that was my experiences with the Florida bar. Well, Fred, tell us, uh, you, you've won a significant number of victories and uh, quite well known for it and some, you know, obviously the biggest victory of ever. But tell us about the cases that you've lost. Oh, there's, there's so many of them. Uh, uh, that, Which one stands uh, out to you? Gosh, I'm trying to That think. you wish you uh, would have won or you thought you should have won. Every one of them. <laughs> I, I mean, I've never, no, I've never been in a trial that I did not think I was going to win. Uh, just, well, the last case that I, well, I, the last case I tried, I, I did get a verdict. Uh, it was the second time the case was tried. The first time, the jury, it was a three-week trial. The jury went out in 30 minutes and found for the defense. I was really upset. And uh, what happened, it happened that the defense lawyers and our team were staying in the same hotel. And the night after the defense verdict, I walked by, and they were in the bar laughing and joking. And then they had a, a major press release that really took me over the coals. And so I, at that point, uh, ah, let's appeal. Let's just cost them some money, never expecting it to reverse. They reversed the case, sent it back for a new trial. And this time I got, uh, this was a little over a year ago, $3.4 million. And... Uh, I think the uh, the loss of the first case got to me as much as any of them. But it just, uh, I've never tried a case. I didn't think I was winning and just kicking butt. But uh, but I've lost, you know, I've lost my share. I went for a long time, but uh, recent. In some of the cases that you've won, an awful lot of money gets transmitted to some people who don't know how to handle an awful lot of money. What do you do? What does this? What does the plaintiffs' bar do to help those folks that really don't understand large sums of money? I know that there's structured settlements and and uh, you dole money out over time, but you know you always hear about the lottery winner that wins eighty eight million dollars and three weeks later has got nothing left. Uh, what do you find happens with the people that win are on the winning end of your verdicts? Uh, Pretty much the same thing. We try to talk major amounts. We try to talk them into a structured settlement. I think I saw figures, and this was a few years ago, that people who received $500,000 or more in a personal injury case had lost every bit of it within three years, that great majority of them. I mean, you know, they have a family and friends and everybody around them and uh, you know, you make such a great hamburger. Let's open up a hamburger joint. And that, that's that kind of thing. Fred, you started practicing in 1961. What's what's changed about trial practice in the years that you've been doing it? Several things. One is the attitude of the public, the attitude of the jury. Uh, when I used to, when I first started, I felt like, we were on the same page that I was part of them and they were part of me over a period of years now 53 years they've advertising and propaganda and the media and uh, they've done a fabulous job of making us out to be just these ruthless money hungry uh, people well but worse than that is the uh, situation with expert witnesses it costs so much to try a case nowadays the case i'm getting ready to try in california in a week after next will have several hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost there are certain expert witnesses that charge fifteen hundred dollars an hour and uh, it just i was explaining to mike papantonio uh not long ago, we were talking, and I said, you know, when I first started practicing law, I would stand up in closing argument and do what today I'm having to pay somebody an arm and a leg 
to say the same thing. In other words, an expert witness today, when he takes a stand, is doing nothing more than saying what the lawyer wants him to say. Otherwise, he'd go get a different expert. When I first started, you didn't need experts. In closing argument, I would explain it with common sense. And uh, so that's, to me, the biggest change, the expense. And then you've got the defense firms, major firms that, you know, you walk in to take a deposition, and they've got five lawyers over there, and they spend hours and hours. I remember I <laughs> some of my best verdicts were tried. I came in on Monday morning, picked a jury, did the opening statement, put the case on, did closing argument, and had the verdict back that night. I mean, I, that uh, actually happened a couple of times, and one of them was a million-dollar verdict. Nowadays... Uh, <laughs> It's been two weeks, and uh, it's it's a shame because we're seeing less and less litigation, less and less juries, jury trials, and and the reason is that the lawyer can't afford to take on the case, and it's just it 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 really is. It's a shame, and and I just hope that in the future something changes. But I think the. The main thing has to be the court has got to take control over all of this unnecessary discovery and uh, all of the uh, expert uh, testimony. Let it get back to what it really was, and that is what the lawyer has to say. Well, what do you blame for that? I mean, was it the federal rules of civil procedure that, that caused that change, or, or what made experts take on that role? What, what caused those kind of changes? Yeah, especially given Mike's complaint that they're paying that much money to defense lawyers. Well, it, what happened, unfortunately, it, it just seems to me that, that the courts also saw, boy, these plaintiff's lawyers are kicking butt, and they're making, I mean, things were going great. And then uh, for the injured party, and then all of a sudden, all this propaganda, the media, the advertising, and it started to change. And the courts, keep in mind that in most situations, these judges run for election, other than federal judges. And that creates, they've got to go along with the public. And so that meant more and more of uh, uh strictness and more and more uh, trying to cut back on all of these plaintiff's verdicts. And unf- I mean, you go into, as you leave Florida heading west, the further west you get, the more difficult it is. Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. And finally, when you get into Texas, I've heard, it's hard for me to believe, it's something like 3% of the plaintiff's ver- verdicts uh, get through the appellate system. I don't know. Well, Fred, if you were to uh, have the ability to put something on your tombstone, what would you put on it? Hmm. It's funny because the book uh, that Josh, um, by the way, Josh is a fabulous writer, five-time New York Times best-selling author. So the book, And Give Up Showbiz, is not nearly as much about the law as lawyer, uh, most lawyer books. And it tells about the struggle that I went through at earlier in our conversation, I told you, I had to work two, three, four times harder than the next guy to stay competitive because I didn't have that natural ability to speak or that natural intelligence. And uh, so in spending as much time as I did, I unfortunately uh, limited my time with the family and, uh, I, that, anyhow, that, that would be my regret. I don't, I really wouldn't want it on the tombstone, but if I left it up to the children, I don't know what they would say, whether they want to put something in there about the regret or whether they want to say something about God. He, uh, he may not have been a great father, but he's a great provider and a great lawyer. One thing the book talks about uh, that not too many lawyers have on their resumes is that uh, you spent some time as a uh, manager uh, of a of boxer Roy Jones Jr. in the late 80s and early 90s. How did you mm-hmm. fall into that? 
like most things in my life, I've been so fortunate. Uh, uh, you know, a great a trial lawyer has got to have the great case. I know a lot of guys who are outstanding lawyers never got the great case. I happen to have had it happen several times in my career. Well, I was sitting in my office in September of 1988 uh, that in August at the Olympics, Roy Jones Jr. had gotten, he beat the hell out of the Korean, but they took, uh, they gave the fight to the Korean and the whole world got upset. Anyhow, his father came in to see me in September and said, I want you to represent him. And I said, I don't really know that much about the business of boxing. And he said, that's why I want you to do it. So he gave me help, and he had people help me. And so I just happened to fall into what was considered to be the the greatest pound-for-pound boxer of the 20th century. And that was a ride. I mean, keep in mind, I went through 50 uh, fights without a loss. I mean, there was one disqualification, but that came 15 minutes after they they had raised Roy's hand. So I'm in the ring all the time, just running around. It was the most exciting time of my life. I see that we are about out of time for today's program uh, and uh, really like to thank Mm -hmm. Fred Levin for being with us today. And uh, I uh, encourage our uh, listeners to go out and Look for the new book about his career, and uh, is that available now, Fred? Is that out in bookstores now? Yes. Yeah, it's out in bookstores, and it's uh, on Amazon. And, and, and Give Up Showbiz uh, is the name of the book. Yeah. Uh, it, it's out there, written by uh, Josh Young, a five-time New York Times bestselling author. Fred Levin, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for asking me. And, Bob, that brings us to the end of our show today. For the special edition of Lawyer to Lawyer, I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.